0: and welcome to Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Hamish. And I'm Irene. We're a twice-monthly queer history podcast coming out on the 1st and 15th of each month. In each episode, we talk about a person, a place, or a topic in queer history from around the world and throughout time. Today, it's World AIDS Day, and so we're going to be talking about the history of the AIDS epidemic in Australia. <laughs> Just a few content warnings before we begin this episode. Obviously we'll be talking about HIV and AIDS. We'll also be discussing period typical homophobia, there's a couple of mentions of illegal drug use and of suicide, as well as explicit discussions of sex, and a few swear words. So if any of that sounds like something you don't want to hear, feel free to check out any of our other episodes, we have content warnings at the start of all of them. There's a couple of things I want to say before I start. So firstly, obviously the AIDS epidemic was worldwide, and I've decided to focus only on Australia. Firstly, because we're in Australia and I had to focus somewhere. And secondly, because as an introduction to talking about this, Australia is pretty positive. We had a pretty good reaction and handled it pretty well. So we're not in for like a super dark story where everyone just dies horribly. So obviously AIDS affected a lot of communities, but it was most prevalent among men who have sex with men. So while it did affect sex workers and injecting drug users and those communities had to deal with a lot of things during the epidemic, I'm not focusing on them because we don't have time and we are a queer history podcast. And trans
1: women, presumably? Is that a...?
0: Yes, that's a very valid point. And trans women. And other women. Like, it affected a whole range of people, but we're focusing on men who sleep with men. So before we get into the history, I'm just gonna do a little explanation of what HIV is and what AIDS is, which you may or may not already know, but we probably should just clarify. HIV is the human immunodeficiency virus. So what a virus does is it gets inside your body and it replicates itself using what your body uses to replicate your normal cells to spread around your body. And the HIV virus specifically does that attacking your immune cells. So your immune system, which your body uses to fight disease. When you first get infected with HIV, there's a stage called acute infection where a lot of people will have flu-like symptoms for a couple of weeks, but people often don't realize they've got HIV because they just go, oh yeah, I've got the flu, and then they move on with their lives. So after the acute infection phase, um, HIV stays in your system and gradually chips away at your immune system. And this phase can last anywhere from two years to 20 years, usually about eight years, and during that time, you don't really present with any symptoms to indicate you have HIV, and you can have no idea that you've been infected. So over this time, your immune system gets weaker and weaker, and it eventually fails. You get a whole host of problems like fever and fatigue, weight loss, diarrhea, and there's specific infections like certain types of pneumonia, which are also associated specifically with having HIV. And so this stage where all these problems start to present is called AIDS, which is Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, And it's usually these infections and things that will kill a person who has got HIV.
1: Does it look different to some other immune deficiency syndrome at this point? Is it? I don't
0: think so. Okay. Because it's just that your immune system has been weakened to the point where it can no longer fight off very basic infections. So all the infections you get, you could get anyway. And anyone with a weak immune system could get. So HIV is transmitted through unprotected sex, through blood transfusion, through use of contaminated needles, syringes, and it can be transmitted from mother to child during pregnancy, birth, or breastfeeding. It was probably passed to humans from primates in West Africa, and the first human case appeared in 1959 in the Belgian Congo. Was that the first human case of AIDS or of HIV? Yeah, no, it was the first human case of AIDS, and at the time when this man, whose name we don't know, died of AIDS, it wasn't known what he died of, and the later testing of his blood, once HIV and AIDS had been identified, revealed that that was in his blood.
1: Ah, okay. So they, like, put his blood aside for, like, hopefully medical
0: advances will figure this out after he died? Yeah, I think that's what happened. And then someone was like, yeah, that was probably HIV, let's test, because that would be the first known human case okay yeah from west africa the virus probably spread to haiti and then from there into the usa hiv reached the usa definitely by the 1980s there are reported cases that may have been earlier and by june 1982 it was recognized as being some sort of immune deficiency that was particularly prevalent among men who slept with men around that time it was called grid rather than AIDS, which stands for gay related immune deficiency well wow. That wasn't the official medical name, but that was kind of the name that they were using in the press when they were trying not to use the more common names at the time, which were gay cancer and the gay plague. So I'd take rid over those. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And in 1982, the Centers for Disease Control in the USA coined the name AIDS. So despite early speculation at this time that AIDS was sexually transmitted, that wasn't definitively proven, and they didn't know what caused it. And so there was a whole lot of speculated causes, which were all aspects of what they called at the time the homosexual lifestyle. So that was using party drugs, sexual promiscuity, and regular exposure to STIs. One particularly common belief at the time was that semen was an immunosuppressant, and that gay men were ruining their immune systems by ingesting too much semen. I see. So you would be (laughs) fine as long as you didn't swallow. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Either...
2: Either semen is a terrifyingly potent immunosuppressant in this model, yeah. <laughs> or they're assuming that people are ingesting a lot of semen.
0: I think it that they were assuming that people were ingesting huge quantities of semen. And there was also just this, like, everyone was just not acknowledging that heterosexual couples ever had oral sex at this point, which is like, obviously false.
1: Presumably they were just imagining that gay men had way more sex than everyone else. And
0: I mean, I think that was the cultural understanding of the yeah. time, was that... and. I'm not going to say it was true but it was a part of gay culture that gay culture was very built around this casual sex and sexual promiscuity was a big part of male gay identity in the 1980s in the USA and in Australia. Yeah. So like yeah they were having a bunch of sex that is true. They were swallowing copious amounts of semen but this doesn't scientifically we hold up. But people genuinely believed it and it actually did lead to a lot of safe sex campaigns so like not all
1: bad. I was going to say as sort of wild stabs in the dark about what's causing AIDS go. It's not sort of... It's not the worst medieval medicine idea I've heard. Yeah,
0: you've kind of got the (laughs) cause and the effect. Just the middle ground is wrong.
1: Yeah, you're just sort of missing the mechanism through which this happened.
0: Yeah, yeah. So a lot of gay men actually subscribe to these beliefs that various things like swallowing semen or taking party drugs or exposing yourself to too many STIs through casual sex with a lot of partners were what was causing AIDS. So some activists started changing their own lifestyles to try and avoid AIDS and to attack other gay men who were still being sexually active with multiple partners. Presumably this would have been fairly effective. This attempt to stop. Yeah. Like, if you... Those sorts
1: of changes are going to go some way to not exposing you to this. Mm.
0: Yeah, like, the tone was very moralistic, Mm -hmm. but... You're right. They were ultimately promoting safe sex, and that was good, and that did do something towards preventing the spread of HIV. Yeah. Before the actual causes had been identified. Like, you are right. It was just unfortunate that the tone wasn't great. I'll read you a quote from two gay activists in America so you can get an idea. So this is from a piece of writing by two American activists called Michael Callan and Richard Berkowitz, and they say... We veterans of the circuit must accept that we have overloaded our immune systems with common viruses and other sexually transmitted infections. Our lifestyle has created the present epidemic of AIDS among gay men. And these were the men who were then going out and attacking other gay men and sort of not physically attacking, like in their writing, attacking other gay men and saying, you know, it's your lifestyle that has caused this and this is kind of our fault that this has happened. So by the end of 1981, 151 gay men had died of immune deficiency in the USA which wasn't yet recognized as being HIV. They didn't know what was causing it. The first article in an Australian newspaper about AIDS appeared in a gay paper in July 1981, and it was talking about the situation in America. The title was New Pneumonia Linked to Gay Lifestyle. The first AIDS diagnosis in Australia was in Sydney in October in 1982. Just the patient was a 27-year-old gay man who was visiting from New York. The first death in Australia took place the following year in Melbourne in July 1983. Watching the epidemic in America before it got to Australia though had enabled the gay community in Australia to kind of see what was coming and prepare themselves, which was something that the American community never had a chance to do. So for example, in the state of Victoria in June 1983, so this is before the first death in Australia, public meeting was held of over 300 people to discuss the epidemic and doctors came in to talk to them about the disease. One of the many people who was there described it as the largest single gathering of gay people I'd ever seen in my life, short of a party. So it was already really bringing the gay community together to try and fight this epidemic before we had this epidemic. So that meeting in Victoria led to the foundation of the Victorian AIDS Council, or what became the Victorian AIDS Council, it had a different name when it started. And they already began forming support services and liaising with doctors and training volunteers and distributing safe sex information at nightclubs and beats. And similar things happened in other states. And so all these AIDS councils began already very early on, accumulating specialist knowledge and experience that was very useful to the community and also to the government as it began to formulate its ex- its response later on. Well, that was forward thinking. Yeah, super legit.
2: <laughs> I mean, forewarned is forearmed, I
0: suppose. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, we were forewarned by seeing it happen in America. Mm. And also seeing how badly America dealt with it. Yeah, Mm. which I didn't do much research into, but, like, you know, Reagan. Hi, Reagan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's estimated, although there wasn't an available test yet, that in 1984 there were almost 3,000 new cases of HIV in Australia.
2: 3,000?
0: 3,000. That escalated quickly. Yeah, that escalated very quickly. So, yeah, an important thing to remember in, like, its transmission is you don't know you have it. Hmm. Yeah. So if you're a man who regularly sleeps with, you know, a whole lot of other men without protection, and none of you will know until years later if you've got this virus, like you can see how this happens. Hmm. So in the early 80s, Australia very rapidly rose to being the third or fourth country in the world when it came to AIDS per capita. And that was spread largely by men sleeping with other men. But early on, it was also spread through blood transfusion because people weren't aware that that was a thing that could transmit HIV. Hmm. And in the 1980s, before people knew that blood transfusion could transmit HIV, gay men with multiple sexual partners were actually being actively encouraged to donate blood because it was a way of getting free and anonymous screening for other STIs. Because the blood bank will screen your blood hmm. and send you a letter if you have an STI and you don't have to go to a doctor and tell anyone that you're being tested for an STI.
2: I mean, that sounds like a Terrible misstep, but I, it doesn't feel like a fault of anybody's.
0: No, I don't think it was a fault of anybody's because as soon as they find there's something in your blood, they're not going to give it to anyone. It's mm. kind of a misuse of the resources of the blood bank, but it's not. If the alternative is not knowing you have an STI and spreading it, then, like, mm. yeah, it's pretty legit. But when it was discovered that HIV could be spread through blood transfusion in 1983, Dr. Gordon Archer, who was the director of the Sydney Blood Transfusion Service, Came out and called for what he called promiscuous homosexuals to voluntarily stop giving blood and claimed that AIDS was almost definitely already in the blood supply because of these people, which was a baseless claim. It couldn't be tested at that time, but it made front page news and it was a very big deal. In the blood supply? In the donated blood supply.
2: The big vat of blood that they keep under the hospital.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, is that.
1: that really how it works? No, no. no. no, no, no.
0: <laughs> but <laughs> that, that's what I mean. They
1: keep these things separately. There's no AIDS is in the blood supply. There's AIDS is in, like, this bag and this bag and not the rest and I mean, this one.
0: You're absolutely right. And Dr. Gordon Archer was absolutely making a baseless and homophobic claim.
2: But by the same token, if they're not identified by Tom, gay man, 27, then... Mm. If all of these items are fungible, then they might as well be in a big bucket.
1: Except they test them before they give them
0: to anyone. But there wasn't a test for HIV available at this time.
1: Ah, I see. So he's just saying, well, we have all this blood and we have no idea what's good and what's bad here. Yeah,
0: we have all this blood. We know gay men have AIDS and we know gay men give blood. Therefore, promiscuous gay men are giving us all AIDS through our blood supply. Is basically what Dr. Gordon Archer said.
2: I mean... It's homophobic presentation. Yes. But I feel like you could reach the same point from the assertion that AIDS is bloodborne and people give blood.
0: Mm, Yeah. And the blood transfusion service generally was kind of trying to... They were quite confused about what they wanted to say at this time, but they were kind of trying to put out a similar message. And then he just came and said this in horrible wording and it hit the front page of the newspaper and they kind of had to do damage control. Hmm. By June of 1983, so that's not long after he came out and said this, People donating blood were asked to sign a document saying that they weren't in at-risk groups of AIDS, which included sexually active gay and bisexual men. And soon after that, lying on this document was criminalised. And there was a lot of negative reaction among the gay and bisexual communities about this and about their right to donate blood. But there was also a lot of concern among other parts of that community that by coming out and saying, oh, we have a right to give blood, they appeared to be very self-serving and not actually concerned with the welfare of the commun- the public as a whole.
1: I was going to say, if I was in a group that was at risk of a mysterious and fatal disease that was blood like, mm. transmitted and couldn't be tested for, I wouldn't be giving blood. Mm. Mm. Like, that, that seems like the right thing to do there, is to say to that community, look, we don't know what's going on, just don't give blood. Did we know that AIDS was bloodborne at this point? Yes. Okay.
0: But I think another thing to consider is that in Australia, there's no motivation to give blood except, you know, feeling like it's your civic duty and wanting to give blood. Nobody pays you for your blood or anything. It's a voluntary act. So people who thought they were at risk had no motivation to go out and try to donate blood. Whereas men who were gay and did sleep with other men regularly, but felt for whatever reason that they weren't at risk, like they always used a condom or they only had one partner or felt they knew for whatever reason that they couldn't have got it, which, you know, obviously may not be correct. They felt that it was discriminatory to say, oh, you know, because you've slept with a man, you can't give blood, even though a woman who may have also slept with a man who had HIV would never face this discrimination. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I think there are obviously two sides to this argument and it's not a cut and dried, they should have just let gay men just give blood without any caveats at a time when there was a disease in the gay population that we knew was bloodborne but couldn't test for, but they did handle it badly. Yeah, no, I think
1: the language is the problem here rather than the policy. I see what they're coming at and I think they could have done that without being sort of homophobic about it.
0: Yeah, and I think also, so in 1986... Uh, testing was introduced and Australia started screening its blood supply for HIV, but they didn't get rid of the ban, which I think is also flawed. And now the ban has been reduced to 12 months. So what they say is if within the last 12 months you have had oral or anal sex with another man, even using a condom, you can't give blood, which given the testing available is a very long waiting period that doesn't truly make sense. Hmm. What if it's
1: been you and your same gay partner no so the
0: whole time you just can't do it so if you're in an ongoing relationship with two men and you regularly have sex you can never give blood okay that's yeah that's not the most sensible yeah and the other thing is the other question they ask is if you have had sex with a man who you think has had oral or anal sex with another man in the past 12 months you can't give blood and the um when i looked this up the red cross which handles blood donations in australia Says specifically, if you are unable to donate, it's for safety reasons based on medical research. The blood service does not discriminate based on sexual orientation. I don't know how you feel about that. Again, I can see where they're coming from.
1: But once we have this testing process that we have... Yeah.
2: It's difficult because I feel like somebody has had to sit down with a spreadsheet at some point and figure out how many dice everybody's rolling. And then, like, Mm. in in terms of how they manage a blood supply... And I feel like without knowing what the outcome of that spreadsheet is, it is difficult for us to make a judgment, Mm. or a correct judgment, at least.
0: That may be true, but I feel, from my reading, I feel like this decision was made in the 80s, and rather than somebody sitting down and doing all the maths, it's just been kind of good there since the 80s.
2: Mm. When did we reduce the ban?
0: I couldn't find that out. Mm. It wasn't obviously anywhere. Yep. Anyway that's something that we're still doing and need to think about as a people. Because, yeah, I think you're right. In those situations where you are a man who has regular sex with another man, but that's a monogamous partnership where you both know you don't have HIV, yeah, there's no reason except the assumption that gay men are promiscuous and have AIDS to stop you giving. Yeah. And I think that's flawed. So although it was front page news when Dr. Gordon Archer came out and said his thing about promiscuous homosexuals, The issue of HIV-AIDS and transmission really came to widespread public notice the next year, so in November 1984, when In the state of Queensland, the government reported that four babies had died after receiving infected blood transfusions from a gay man. The Victorian AIDS Council president, Phil Carswell, describes the day that followed that announcement in the newspaper as one of the worst days of my life. So there was a lot of public fear and panic, and a lot of that was obviously directed into homophobia.
2: It's probably also worth noting that Queensland is the top one, and is notably conservative even today.
0: Yes, yes. Queensland is probably our most conservative state, I would...
2: I've heard it described as our Florida.
0: Okay. I've also heard it described as our Texas, so do with that what you will, Americans. But it is our most conservative state. Yeah. We'll talk more about Queensland in a minute. We're going to have to deal with some of Queensland's choices later in this episode. So yeah, the father of one of the babies, who had died, came out in the press and said, As the parents of this baby, we feel that the only honourable thing for the murderer of our son to do is commit suicide.
2: Okie doke.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah, so that was the public reaction we were dealing with. I mean, it's one
1: of those things where it's really hard to sort of hold these things against someone whose baby has just died.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that is true. I don't think that we should look at this father and go, you know, what an awful, awful man, his baby has just died. But I think that was published in the newspaper and is kind of representative of the way people were talking about this. Yeah.
2: And there are a range of reactions to grief, and that is not on the good end of the spectrum. Yeah,
0: no, that... Your baby just having died is not an excuse to tell someone to kill themselves. Nonetheless, his reactions are understandable. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to read you quite a long quote, which is from a funeral parlor worker who dealt with one of the very early AIDS deaths in 1983 and 1984, which just shows the level of fear and the total lack of understanding of how you could or couldn't get HIV. So he says, I scroll, he says, We dressed in all the protective gear we could find, including respirators. We placed the body in a vacuum-sealed body bag. I think we used two. Then the body was placed into a lead coffin and sealed airtight closed. Then the remains were placed into a solid wooden coffin, with the lid glued on and one-way screws used. So the body can't get itself out again, I guess.
2: I definitely feel like there's more of a risk to public health in putting a bunch of lead in the ground than there is in, in burying a dead gay man.
0: That's very true, but he's got more. It continues. The vehicle was steam cleaned inside and out and everything we had used was incinerated. Once home, I went upstairs, running a bath with the hottest water I could stand, used two bottles of disinfectant and sat in it till the water cooled and I came out like a prune. Being married, we agreed to sleep separately for six weeks until I could be blood test clear twice. We were so paranoid that we had no physical contact for this time.
1: This is, yeah, it's again one of those things where it sounds stupid to us now, but I can't really hold it against them in the context.
0: Yeah, and I think the reason I wanted to read that is just to show the level of ignorance and fear in the general public. They just had no idea what was going on, and they were terrified that any physical contact with someone who might have this disease would give them the disease.
2: Yes, it definitely sounds like it speaks to to that very, very old primal fear that leads to people burning bodies and donning Plague Doctor masks.
1: Yep. I was about to raise the Plague Doctor issue. It's a little bit like that. It's that kind of, this looks comical and stupid to us, but in the context of like the Black Death, they were looking, being like, well, we don't know what's happening, so we're going to try everything.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's true with when you look at all the things they did in the funeral part, just, you know it could get to us in any way. We have to burn everything. We have to wash ourselves and disinfectant and yeah, all this stuff. There are a couple of other more comical reactions that I want to bring up just because the things people said back to them are quite funny. So the New South Wales police called for a halt on breathalysing drivers for fear infection. And this led one commentator to ask which part of the police's apparatus the cops expected the drivers to blow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and also which part they expected them to reuse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which uh, sounds like a, a risk as a vector for just all disease.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't really know. They they Cops even asked to be supplied with plastic gloves in case they accidentally touched someone's saliva and that gave them AIDS. They just had no idea what was happening. Ansett, the Australian airline, which we all know about because it went bankrupt, <laughs> not as a result of this, just independently, much later... <laughs> tried to ban HIV-positive people from its planes uh, with the claim that it needed to protect its staff. And the um, Association of Flight Attendants came out and said that that was ridiculous and that anyone who managed to transmit HIV on a plane should be given points for Enterprise. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently there
1: is a thing where flight attendants, like male flight attendants, is quite a gay culture.
0: Yeah, no, I have heard that. So I can see where this response came from. So the AIDS councils that I talked about before that were formed really early on were kind of trying to liaise with the government at this point and before this point and kind of say, what are we going to do? Here's the issues. Here's how we think we should respond. And um, Phil Carr as well, so that's the head of the Victorian AIDS Council, said they didn't know who this strange mob of homosexuals were and why they were bothering the health department.
1: So they were just completely unaware. They just didn't know this issue existed.
0: Yeah, they just didn't really recognise it was an issue. And when the AIDS councils tried to bring it to them, I think they were just kind of like, this is a small thing. This doesn't seem like a big deal. Hmm. And then quite suddenly it became a big deal. So in March 1985, the first HIV test was introduced. And I'm just going to take the example of the state of New South Wales to talk a bit about what reactions to that were.
2: New South Wales is the middle right-hand one.
0: It's the one with Sydney in it. So in Australia, we have a federal government, which runs our whole country, also called the Commonwealth government, and then we have state governments. And our state government and our federal government are often in conflict and often run by different parties. So the attitudes that you're about to see in New South Wales are going to conflict with the attitudes we'll see later in the federal government. That's just a brief introduction to Australian politics for you all. In New South Wales, when the test was introduced and people could go to their doctor and see if they had HIV, HIV became classified as a notifiable disease. So that means that a doctor had to tell the state health department when a patient presented with HIV and let the department know the age, sex and occupation of the patient. That was standard practice for STIs. But with HIV, as well as age, sex and occupation, they included name and address okay. It's partly about the government kind of just managing its response to the spread of disease and partly when you're talking about STIs about seeing if there's like something like a person who has it and is spreading it. Right. So this happened, this um, HIV becoming notifiable and you having to notify the name and address happened under the Premier so that's the person in charge of the state government and his name is Neville Rand. Just keep Neville Rand in mind for a minute. You need to know his name. As I said, the goal of this was to manage the government's response to the epidemic and to make it easier to track down people who were knowingly spreading HIV. Knowingly spreading? Was this an issue? No. It's definitely a thing I've heard a couple of times.
1: Like in my life where somebody has got HIV and been like, all right, fine, I'm going to take as many people down with me as possible. I remember hearing about this on Joy, which is Hmm. our gay radio station, in case this stays in, where they changed penalties for this kind of thing in some way, like made them harsher. So, yeah, it's apparently a thing, but not probably the major concern here.
0: Yeah, and I think that law has very recently gone through in Australia, changing those penalties, but I can't remember the details on it. But despite doing research on what the law surrounding that was, I never turned up a case of that happening in this time. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, it may have occurred, but it wasn't a huge problem that the government kind of needed to get on top of by making a registry of people with HIV. As well as that, there was also a widespread public call for compulsory testing of high risk groups. HIV. So there was basically an idea where every gay man would have to get a test for HIV and that his name and address would be written on a list if he had HIV. So polls from 1986 show that 50% of people favored mandatory testing. Uh, At the time, these tests were not accurate at all. And and even if you found out you had HIV, there was nothing you could do. And we know from statistics in America, in the USA, 14% of people who found out they were HIV positive considered suicide. So forcing testing on these people when there was nothing that could be done about it and you might get a false positive is very ethically dubious. There was also the concern that this information wasn't spread, wasn't shared with the government or with people who were HIV positive in a very confidential way. So it was often just done over the phone in Mm -hmm. a doctor's office.
2: There's still a set of laws in our Privacy Act at the moment that says you have to treat any information on somebody's sexual orientation as protected information.
0: Yeah, so we didn't have those laws at the time, and we had no anti-discrimination laws specifically about HIV status until much later in the 80s, and so people were very worried that this list would get leaked and that that would lead to discrimination in the workplace or, you know, trying to get a home loan or just anything, basically. And finally, there had been genuine talk, which a quarter of people favoured, of quarantining people with AIDS or HIV. So a quarter of people said they favored isolation of HIV positive people from the workplace and their community. And um, Mark Counter who was diagnosed with HIV in Sydney in 1985 says, I still remember preparing an evacuation plan made to get out of Sydney in a hurry just in case they began rounding us up. So the gay community was incredibly terrified of this idea of there being a list Mm -hmm. and what the government could do with this list once it had that in its power. How much do we know at this point about how it's being spread? Um, I think it was in 1984 that it was that HIV, as opposed to AIDS, was identified and determined to be a sexually transmitted disease. And so the first test came out in 1985. So we already know what it is at this point. OK, because that's just I feel a lot of that kind of
1: panic and quarantining talk sort of things are quite forgivable when we don't know what's going on. Mm. Yes. But I wanted to know whether we'd got past that point
2: yet. I think that's probably a really good measure of how inappropriate they are at this time, that they are the sort of things that are only appropriate in a state of utmost panic.
0: Mm. And these stats about, you know, 50% of people supported mandatory testing and a quarter of people supported Quarantine. quarantine come from 1986. So at that time, we knew what the disease was and there was a test for it. It wasn't a great test, but there was a test.
1: I don't expect you to really have an answer to this, but do you know any details about the test? What, how did it work? What made it
0: inaccurate? What level of accuracy was there? So it doesn't actually measure HIV, the virus itself, in your blood. It measures your body's response to that. So the um, antibodies that you produce to fight HIV. The problem is you can produce those antibodies for a whole host of different things. So if you'd had malaria, if you'd had several children, I'm not sure exactly how that works, but-
1: Yes, there's a thing about this. I read an article about it the other day. It comes up weird if you're a woman with some blood types, like particular yeah. rare blood types, and you have a child with different blood types, then your body will just produce these antibodies and try and kill the child, basically.
0: Yeah, and I think this is a lesser thing of that, where probably if you would had several children, there are chances that on one had a different blood type than you and your body would have produced some of these antibodies. Maybe not necessarily that terminated the pregnancy, but they would be in your blood. And there are a couple of other things that could cause this. So a huge number like... I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it was something like more than half positives were false. Really? So, yeah. It wasn't a great test.
1: So, it wasn't so much a HIV test as a, there's a bunch of people here we can say, don't worry, you definitely don't too.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's more like that. Yeah, I think the negatives were, like, reasonably reliable, but the positives were wildly unreliable. Okay. Once we started talking about mandatory testing for gay people and stuff. Another issue was that many gay men felt they'd only recently escaped from being viewed as being diseased for being gay and from homosexuality being pathologized, and that compulsory testing and listing of at-risk communities would reignite this medicalized view of homophobia. Canadian journalist, An activist Michael Lynch wrote in 1982, like helpless mice, we have preemptorily, almost inexplicably relinquished the one power we so long fought for in constructing our modern gay community, the power to determine our own identity. And to whom have we relinquished it? The very authority we wrested it from in a struggle that occupied us for more than a hundred years, the medical profession. In Australia, we were very lucky, as we were about many things in this epidemic, that the medical and gay communities had worked really hard over the previous decades to build up a relationship of trust. A lot of doctors were kind of actively fighting against homophobic attitudes and encouraging gay men to seek medical health issues such as STIs. In the first week of the compulsory notification law in New South Wales, some clinics which largely serviced the gay community reported drops in men presenting for testing of up to 50%. Dr. Bethel Donovan, who I like a lot, worked with a lot of (laughs) gay clients in Sydney and he went so far as to say that he would burn his records before he would let them fall into government hands. And another response among gay men was that they still continued to show up and present for testing, but they all gave their name as Neville Rand. <laughs> <laughs> so the list was just Neville Rand, Neville Rand, Neville
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. That's <laughs> really good.
0: <laughs> That's why I told you I had to remember, you had to remember his name before. Those, like I said before, those testing issues were among state government under Neville Rand, who was terrible. And now we're going to turn and look at the federal government, who was pretty good. So it's going to be nice. Throughout most of the 80s in Australia, the ALP, or the Labour Party, was in power, which is our kind of...
2: Centre left.
0: Centre left. Of our two major parties, it's the more left. And um, so their health policy was quite focused on preventative and community-based health programs, which is what the gay community was advocating for, to combat HIV and AIDS at this time. So that was nice. I told you I'd bring this up before. Two days after the announcement of the four babies that died in Queensland... All the state and territory health ministers met with the federal health minister to discuss what action should be taken. So this was a very this is a very unusual thing to happen. The health ministers don't usually get together like this. This was a massive emergency thing that hadn't happened since World War II for hmm. all the ministers from the state and the federal government to get together and have a conversation about a specific issue. Federal health minister Neil Blewett specifically sought the advice of the AIDS councils before going into this meeting to get their information on, you know, what they thought was going on and what they thought he should do about it. Unfortunately, the gay representatives weren't allowed into the meeting because Queensland threatened to boycott if they were.
2: Hi, Queensland.
0: Hi, Queensland. We'll see you again soon. Why didn't we just leave Queensland out of the <laughs> meeting? That's a good question. It's you or the gays. See you, Queensland. Um, I yeah. think it's
2: because they grow all the fruit.
0: They do grow all the fruit.
2: It's good fruit. I had a mango today. It's
0: good mm. fruit. Mm, yeah. Not relevant. <laughs> Not relevant, but tasty. I think we talked about mangoes in it. Did we talk about mangoes in our last episode?
2: Mangoes we are gay culture, Mango Mangoes a gay
0: culture now. Um,
2: the mangoes are great here, dear listeners. Mm,
0: it's just started being mango season, and I, like I don't like mangoes, but I've watched other people appreciate them, and they look good. So, following this meeting, the federal government created two groups called the National Advisory Council on AIDS or NACAIDS, I assume you pronounce that acronym, I'm going to pronounce that acronym because otherwise it's going to be hell, (laughs) (laughs) and the AIDS Task Force, whose role was to inform and advise them about the epidemic and policies, and NACAIDS was also in charge of running education. Hmm. They also allotted $5 million towards AIDS response, which largely went to these community organisations like AIDS councils.
2: Which may seem like a small number, but if we're using, loosely speaking, the same conversions from the Shelley's Leger episode, it's like... $20 million.
0: Yeah, that's about $15 million in today's money. And as well as that, recognizing that there was no cure on the horizon at the time, the government acknowledged that an education-based preventative approach to AIDS was probably going to be the most effective, and that the gay community themselves were the people best positioned to sort of run this, to educate each other, and to support each other through the epidemic. So the government recognizing the specialist knowledge and positioning of the gay community and of their AIDS councils and forming partnerships both in terms of information and financially with these groups, is a key part of Australia's successful response to the epidemic and basically why thousands and thousands of people didn't die. So good job Neil Blewett. What a good guy. As I mentioned before, by 1984 HIV was identified and it was understood that it was a sexually transmitted disease. Um NAC-AIDS began distributing material on safe sex And they specifically chose to focus on safe sex rather than trying to advocate for celibacy among gay men because um, they recognised that that would just never work and that a large part of gay identity, as we talked about before at the time, was focused around sex. Hmm. It was a part of the culture and you couldn't just get rid of it overnight.
2: And as US sex education tells us, you're not going to get anywhere with telling people not to bone.
0: You're not. As High Court Justice Michael Kirby said, law and the risk of punishment are usually the last thing on the minds of people in the critical moment of pleasure. <laughs> that was very well said. It was. He was talking about both um, criminalising male male sex, which was still legal in several states at this time. Hi,
2: Queensland. Hi, Hi, Queensland. I think. Hi, Tassie.
0: 1997, Tassie. <laughs> <laughs> and he was also talking about... Um, use of drugs like heroin in states where male male sex was illegal which i haven't got a list of but definitely included queensland and tassie tassie or tasmania which is another one of our very conservative states it's that weird triangle one at the bottom yeah it's the island off the bottom of australia it's occupied by like intensely conservative people and like intensely lefty greens just kind of awkwardly coexisting. it's a weird place yeah but in a lot of states including that one male male sex was still illegal and so to spread education material about how to have safe male male sex was seen as advocating breaking the law. So it was quite hard to do. Even though the federal government sanctioned this, the state governments said it was illegal. Hmm.
1: So we should be putting out pamphlets being like, this is 100% a thing you should not do and is illegal. Use a condom.
0: (laughs) So there was a thing you talked to me about the other day, and me and Irene both went to a Catholic school, and you mentioned that they had someone living with HIV yes. come in and talk to we you had
1: this HIV positive
0: woman come in and talk to us mm. and that was a kind of way that people got around it was things like that having you know an HIV positive person come and say oh I've got HIV and you know it's going to affect my life in this way and it's bad and I got it because I had unprotected sex and she was kind of billed to us as like a motivational speaker
2: Hmm,
1: clever. Just Hmm. sort of about, like, this is her talking about her life experience and, like, motivational speaker sort of stuff, but it was really, I think, low-key, under-the-radar safe-sex stuff.
0: Yeah, and that's a thing that religious schools did in the 80s and a thing that they are still doing today to try and get around that thing where you can't talk about using condoms and stuff like that in a Catholic school. Get your act together, Catholic schools. Which I just do. always remember our year nine teachers
1: being like, so don't tell anyone we told you this. But anyway, this is the pill.
0: Yeah, I can remember when they taught us about condoms and they couldn't, they gave us out like all these sheets about sex ed, but they couldn't give us any worksheets on condoms because then there'd be like physical proof that we'd been taught about condoms. Huh. So another thing that I really like was in Western Australia, another state where male male sex was illegal. The AIDS Council advocated and ran what it called fuck parties. <laughs> so like a Tupperware party where all you and your housewives get together and someone brings in all this Tupperware that you can buy, all you and your gay friends would get together in a house, but someone would come in and teach you about safe sex and, you know, give you condoms and stuff like that.
2: That is the best portmanteau I have ever heard. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I love it. I don't know if that happened outside of Western Australia. I only had it mentioned in Western Australia, but I feel like it was probably a universal thing.
2: I certainly hope so.
0: It's pretty great. Let's return to Queensland. We're kind of
1: racking up the states where gay male sex is banned here. Yeah. Where was it
0: not illegal? Uh, It was legal in Victoria from the very early 80s and in South Australia from the very early 80s. And it was legal in the ACT from the very early 80s. I'm not sure. 80% of things are legal in the ACT, I think.
1: Yeah. They were those people where same-sex marriage was briefly legal. It was for like one day, <laughs> yeah. three state years ago. Yeah. Um, and fireworks.
2: The ACT is the fake state around our capital because we had a fight over where it should go.
1: Doesn't yeah. America have one of these too? A fake state around their capital?
2: Oh yeah, District of Columbia.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's the Australian equivalent of Washington DC. We built a city to be our capital and it has its own state that is quite progressive. And it's very small. Very yes. small
2: it used to have a coastline that was not attached to the rest of the state but then we took it away again
0: i don't think anyone's legally clear on whether it owns that coast at this time i looked it up the other day and everyone was like we don't really know <laughs> <laughs> what did we do on a mistake." anyway i talked very negatively about the catholic church a second ago but i want to say a very positive thing about the catholic church now so Hi catholics again Hi Catholics. if you didn't turn it off before <laughs> come back So in Queensland, Queensland had the strongest negative reaction to the federal government's very progressive reaction. And the Queensland government under Joe Bielke-Peterson, you may or may not have heard of. I have not. A not great guy. Good summary. I think he was quite corrupt.
1: Yes, quite corrupt, like super corrupt, super homophobic, quite racist. Like... Oh, the trifecta. Yeah, the trifecta. But apparently, his wife had a really good pumpkin scones
0: recipe. <laughs> yeah, it's actually on Wikipedia that like they are called Joe and Flo, and Flo had like a quality pumpkin scones recipe. Nice. But, but Joe was just a terrible guy. <laughs>
2: anyway, welcome to Australia, Dylan. <laughs>
0: My mum makes the pumpkin scones sometimes out of, like, a 1980s Women's Weekly. Nice. (laughs) It's good. Anyway, so under J.B. Elke-Peterson, Queensland just said no to the federal government's policies, basically. They refused to use any of the NACAIDs educational material, and they instead had a policy of advocating abstinence for gay people. They also refused to have any contact with the Queensland AIDS Council, and they wouldn't pass on federal government funds to the AIDS Council. Uh, So Neil Blewett ended up arranging for the federal government to deliver funds to the AIDS Council in Queensland via the Catholic Sisters of Mercy. Huh. Dis- so the federal government could give money directly to the Sisters of Mercy? Yes, I think it was okay for the federal government to give money to a religious group, but it wasn't okay for the federal government to give money to the AIDS Council without going through the state government. And I'm not sure what the laws around that were. Sneaky. And Neil Blewett described these nuns as the most cheerful and altruistic of money launderers.
2: I'd read that Ken Follett novel.
0: Generally, ignoring Queensland and its issues, the education campaigns were quite good and very successful. The AIDS Council ones, especially because they weren't kind of tied in by any government laws about what they could and could not say and how explicit they could be, were um, very specifically tailored to a young gay male community and used very colloquial, kind of irreverent language been talking about safe sex with the goal of making safe sex education either sound more fun or more erotic or, you know, just more appealing and less kind of clinical.
2: We have a couple of bus ads on that theme at the moment. We do. If anybody's noticed, that features a man just in his jocks and in his underwear on the side of a bus telling you to not get STIs. It's,
1: it's pretty good. Is this the Stop the Drama Down Under go? Yes.
0: Yeah, and it says stop the drama down under, and there's, like, sparks and, like, rabbits and kind of magician-themed stuff flying out of his underwear, yeah. and he's telling
1: you to get tested. And then the little catch, like, slogan at the bottom of it is, like, get tested, get treated, no drama.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we have those ads now, and we've had similar and more explicit ads back in the day. My personal favourite is a brochure, which uses the very Australian-sounding catchphrase, don't get cum in your bum.
2: Well, yep.
0: Which is, <laughs> you know, it's to the point. Yep. So that was good. There are a whole lot of others, but I thought oh, I'd just pick one rather than, like, listing them all. <laughs> the same brochure which said don't get cum in your bum also went on to explain the various approaches to protecting yourself from AIDS, including celibacy and monogamy. And it said, you know, celibacy, don't fuck anyone. Monogamy, don't fuck anyone except your boyfriend. Hmm. So, that was good. Um, there's also a quite good one, which is not so humorous, but is an interesting look at, like, how explicit some of these ads were. And it was specifically targeted at very young men who weren't yet out, but maybe, you know, thinking about or going to sleep with another man for the first time. It's quite long, but I'll read it to you. Mm. And it says, Making the first move might be scary, but more guys than you think are having sex with other guys. It's natural, and if you're safe, you'll have a great time. And what's safe? Kissing, cuddling, licking, stroking, wanking, oral sex, avoid cum in the mouth. Vaginal and anal sex with condoms and water based lube and then it provides information phone numbers that you can call for more information. That is a great pamphlet. Is oral sex fine here? So it says avoid come in the mouth. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, that ad was made by the Victorian AIDS Council and they were thinking about where will we put this ad, and then the um Shadow Health Minister in Victoria, so the opposition health minister got wind of it and she was absolutely horrified and she made this huge deal about this ad and how terrible it was and somebody wrote into the newspaper saying um this ad is obviously aimed at recruitment trying to turn young men gay and because of this great outcry it ended up in the front page of all the major newspapers in victoria
2: oh no for free
0: a... <laughs> without having to pay at all what
2: a terrible outcome
0: yeah so that was good So on the other extreme of kind of public health announcements and advertising, we have the Grim Reaper ad campaign, which, oh yes, have you heard of?
2: I don't think I have.
0: You're in for a time, my friend. My dad showed it to me when I was young. So the Grim Reaper ad campaign was quite pivotal in the public's view of AIDS at the time. It was commissioned by NACAIDS. It was a TV advertising campaign, and it was designed to be incredibly blunt, to be incredibly controversial, to have the maximum impact the man who created it said that his brief was essentially to terrify heterosexual people into understanding the risk of AIDS, because surveys at the time had showed that while heterosexual people acknowledged that there was an AIDS epidemic, they just thought they were safe, hmm. and they thought it didn't concern. I'm going to show you this ad, because it's quite a time, and also because I think the, the sound is good enough that it doesn't oh, leave the pictures. Oh, sweet. Um, so I'll just give a brief description for our listeners who won't be able to see it. Actually, I won't show you first. So yes, If you haven't seen it, I want to see your reaction yes. with that, and then I'll do a description. At first, only gays and IV drug users were being killed by AIDS. But now we know every one of us could be devastated by it. The fact is, over 50,000 men, women and children now carry the AIDS virus. That in three years, nearly 2,000 of us will be dead. But if not stopped, it could kill more Australians than World War II. But AIDS can be stopped, and you can help stop it. If you have sex, have just one safe partner, or always use condoms. Always.
1: That was definitely death playing
0: tenpin balls. Yeah.
2: It's a very graphic ad. There's a lot of sort of dead flopping limbs.
0: Yeah, I'll just do a quick description of the ad for our listeners. So the ad um, shows the Grim Reaper in a bowling alley, and there's a lot of fog and smoke, and it's very sinister. And the bowling pins are people who are supposed to represent ordinary Australians. So there's a little kid, and there's a woman holding a baby, and there's a footballer, and just normal Australians. And then and then as we pan out, we see, as he talks about, you know, we could all be dead, as many as in World War Two. we see that there's actually many, many Grim Reapers in many, many bowling lanes killing ordinary Australians from AIDS. With their bowling balls. With their bowling balls. (laughs) There was a thing from the man who designed the ad who was sort of saying, what will I do? How will I design this ad? And he said, I thought about having Death gunning them down with a machine gun and I thought, but I've got to have like it, you know, however long it is. I've got to have like a one minute ad. A machine gun will kill them all in seconds. And then he sort of went, I went out bowling and then I thought, Wait. And that's why it's a bowling alley.
2: <laughs> there you go. I mean it, it conveys it's got a bunch of like impending rolling doom and a lot of like randomness going on and it, yeah. I feel like it, it gets the message
1: across. Yeah. 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 It is to me like a little bit comical. Like it's death yes. in a bowling alley with a ton of like fake smoke. Yes. Playing bowls with human lives. It's
2: The thing may be that it is now. 2017 and bowling is even more unfashionable.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's no suggestion that it was funny at the time. Okay. It was very serious at the time. And I think it was partly very serious because people around you were dying. I mean, when I was told about this, like I said, my dad showed
1: me this when I was younger. I don't know why we talked about this, but we did. But yeah, he showed me this when I was younger and he gave me no sense that it was ever funny. He Hmm. thought it was quite confronting and like...
0: Serious and controversial. Yeah. The campaign was widely regarded as being very, very successful. People were terrified. It, it worked. But um, it was criticized for its hyperbole. So those comments like, we'll kill more Australians than World War Two. 2,000 of us will be dead within a year kind of thing. There, there was no science to back up those claims. They were just, you know, dramatic, scary numbers. I mean means to an end, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. I think that's what they thought when they were making the ad. And also a lot of... Um, Heterosexual people who saw the ad, rather than identifying the Grim Reaper with AIDS, identified the Grim Reaper with gay people. And they saw, you know, gay people killing normal Australians, in air quotes, with this disease, by spreading this disease among the Australian population.
2: Certainly there weren't any people of colour in the bowling pins.
0: No, and the people in the bowling pins were chosen to represent what was considered a normal Australian in the 1980s, not saying, obviously, that there were no people of colour in Australia in the 80s, but that this kind image of, of an ordinary Australian in the 80s was a very white image. This kind of conservative suburban family mm. image, I guess. Yeah, and it's the things like the mother with the baby and the boy in his football uniform. Yeah, and the little girl. And the little girl, yeah. Um, we'll put the actual ad up on our blog so you can watch the video that goes with that sound.
2: And experience the tragedy plus time equals comedy effect firsthand.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Um, another thing about that ad was like, it's incredibly dark, it's very bleak, it's all about death, and for people who already had HIV and knew they had HIV, it was a very confronting thing, and it made, it had a very bleak outlook for them, hmm. mm. and that was very hard for them. So now I'm going to show you one more example of education campaigns, and this is a nice, light-hearted, fun one to, you know, balance that out. Good, Then good. we'll move on to our discussion of education. Um, so this is one of my favourites. And it's again talking about how campaigns were tailored to their audiences and how important it was that in Australia, it was sort of the community that was in charge of the AIDS response and it was all very grassroots and that enabled education campaigns to be very successful. This one was created in response to the Grim repad, which was seen as being very dark and very, you know, it didn't say, oh, you know, if you have safe sex, it'll be okay. It said, use a condom no or you'll die. So this was created in response to that by a woman named Auntie Graceland Smallwood and the people she worked with, who was a group of um, indigenous sexual health workers in Townsville, which is right up in the north of Australia. It's a rather, at least, how is it's, it's pretty small, isn't it? It's a medium-sized town. Yeah, it?
2: it's populous, full,
0: but it's very remote. Yeah, which yeah. is right up in the sort of remote northern part of Queensland. So there are a lot of Indigenous people there, and it's, yeah. So we don't think of Queensland, the conservative state that we talked about before. We're thinking of Queensland now as, you know, it's got a lot of isolated communities and a lot of Indigenous people who aren't really being looked after, as they should by the government. Um, so, not long after the Grim Reaper ads came out, this woman, Auntie Graceland Smallwood, Auntie has a title of respect before her name, which is given in Indigenous communities. She was particularly concerned that the ads didn't encourage positive sexual agency, and she was also worried, more generally, not about the Grim Reaper, that the current sexual education campaigns weren't reaching remote Indigenous communities, or they weren't effectively speaking to those communities, and also that because we're talking about very, very small communities, Things like going to the chemist and buying a condom, were, a condom buying condoms, were very hard because chances are the person behind the counter in the chemist knew you and knew your family and knew who you were sleeping with. And it was always going to be a big deal and something that was quite stigmatized. Hmm. So to combat these issues, the team launched a superhero named Condom Man. Okay. <laughs> Good. Known as the deadly predator of sexual health.
2: I... They didn't go with the Great Protector or something.
0: No, the Deadly Predator of Sexual Health. <laughs> deadly,
1: like different meaning, indigenous communities. I'm not sure possibly. if they mean deadly sure. as in he
0: will kill HIV or deadly, which in indigenous communities can it's also like mean awesome. like really good. I don't know which meaning of deadly they were going for. I don't know. In Condom Man's tagline, possibly both. <laughs> so, um, Condom Man is a very traditional '80s superhero. He's... Uh, Outfit was inspired by the Phantom, who was very popular at the time. Mm -hmm. Condom Man wears red and yellow rather than purple and black. And he's often pictured proudly holding up a condom and with the tagline or the dialogue bubble, don't be shame, be game, use condoms. So yeah, at the time, Condom Man was mostly, you know, a poster of Condom Man and a costume that people would wear at community events to kind of go around and talk about sexual health. Mm -hmm. In the 2000s, um, Condom Man was relaunched. He now has comic books, which have been kind of animated, not as a, like, show, but kind of the panels have been animated a bit and there's little videos you can watch. Yeah. Yeah, so you can all go online and watch those. You can get Condom Man-branded condoms. Oh, nice. key rings and little action figures. Um... And when he was relaunched, he was also given a sister, known as his slippery sister, <laughs> Lubalicious, who advocates the use of water based lube. Of course. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, and God. she talks about um, women's health and women's business. And she says, you know, I address sisters and sister girls, which is an indigenous term kind of analogous to trans women. And in the condoms, the STIs are all represented as the villains and, you know, they're these sinister looking people and this one's AIDS and this one's chlamydia and it's great.
1: And the condom man and his sister liberal is just coming.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, it's, it's very good. Do you know anything more about, like, the spread of
0: HIV in Indigenous communities? I didn't research it because I was mostly looking at um queer communities. Yeah. But Indigenous people do have a higher rate of HIV than the non-Indigenous population. So that's given us a good overview of um, safe sex education, why it was very effective, and how it came from the community. It was also overall very successful. And so in Australia, new HIV infections peaked in 1984 and then went into rapid decline from then on. Nice. That was
1: indeed very successful. That was like they figured out what it was and it immediately stopped happening. That's like a three-year span, isn't
0: it? Well, the first case in Australia was in 1980. Two, I think Two, yeah And the first case of an Australian As opposed to a man who had come with HIV to Australia Was in 1983 So that's, you know, a year for the country to just act on it
1: that was efficient.
0: Yeah. Um, so by the late 80s, 85 to 90% of gay men were using condoms or having non-penetrative sex when they had sex with casual partners. So yeah, nice. it was just really effective. As well as prevention through education, the other side of dealing with having an AIDS epidemic was looking after the people who had AIDS and were living with AIDS. Or had HIV. Or well, they don't need looking after you. So because we're in Victoria and the Victorian AIDS Council has a lot of historical information available, good on you, Victorian AIDS Council, um... I'm going to use the example of Victoria to talk about how the community dealt with this. So um, the Victorian AIDS Council set up a group of volunteers very, very early on, so I think in 1982, called AIDS Mates. And the idea of AIDS Mates was your AIDS mate would be someone who would provide one-on-one care for you when you had AIDS and were living with sort of the final stages of the disease, but still wanted to live at home and kind of maintain that dignity. And so this included everything from you know helping people with food shopping to just kind of talking them through things to helping them go to the bathroom. Um, and a lot of these people that were being looked after as part of this program had no support. Often they either weren't out to their families or their families had rejected them when they'd come out or as either HIV positive or as gay, and their friends may have had similar reactions. Our volunteer, Jill Missing, said of one case, we looked after one chap who had no friends and there were no relatives. His relatives overseas in Italy thought he had pneumonia. We were the only people at the funeral. So this work was very, very important. By 1992, um, which was around the time the number of AIDS cases peaked in Victoria, there were more than a 1,000 volunteers as part of this program, and they were supporting over 200 clients, and there was a very long waiting list. Um, Many of the volunteers also had full-time jobs at the same time and had friends, or even they themselves had HIV. So it was a lot to deal with. This was an incredibly hard time, although we've talked about you know, how positive the government reaction was. Once HIV started developing into AIDS and people started dying, which was, it didn't start in the early 90s, but it peaked in the early 90s. It was a very, very hard time for the gay community. Part of the program was coordinated by a man named Ken McClelland. Ken had been in prison for draft dodging during the Vietnam War. I like him already. Released again by Gough Whitlam. So um, just as an example of what people were dealing with at the time, Ken had a full-time job. Mm -hmm. He was managing this AIDS Mates program and he was eventually diagnosed with HIV and it was the volunteers from this program that cared for him until he died in the early 90s. And I think this example of Ken is also made sort of clear by something that was said by one of the nurses who worked as a consultant with this program, Denise Brown. And she said, I still speak about this time as being a way of life rather than just a job, as you gave so much of yourself and your time to help support people who wanted to stay at home. Um, and Phil Carlswell, who I've mentioned a couple of times as the president of the Victorian AIDS Council, said at the time, it's becoming very difficult to identify the gay community apart from AIDS. What did he mean by that? He meant that because at this time so many gay people were dying of AIDS, and this was what the community did in terms of activism, they fought for funding and treatment, and in terms of what you did with your day, they looked after each other, and they were often kind of on the forefront of, you know, getting and disseminating information. They were doing everything. And so that was all the community did and became at this time. Which, you know, had some good effects of, you know, it really brought this that generation of the community together as a very, very strong community, but obviously it was just psychological hell for them as well. Mm. So, in 1985, so we've been to the nineties where everyone's dying of AIDS, and I'm going back again. In 1985, an American company patented AZT, whose full name I'm not even going to try and say, was the first drug proven to prolong the lives of people living with HIV. However, in Australia, there were very strict laws on overseas drugs being used in Australia without clinical Australian trials first. And so it was estimated it would take up to seven years for the drug to be approved for use in Australia. That seems like a long time in a national emergency. It does. Yeah. So access to AZT became the focus of um, activism among the gay community at that time and also a lot of the focus of their work. So um, AIDS councils would set up buyers clubs where they bought the drug from America and then sold it on in Australia to try and get it to Australians who really needed it. And um, they also began a series of protests. Um, a lot of this was done by an international group called ACT UP, who's an uh, AIDS activism group. And this culminated in what they called D-Day, which was the 6th of June 1991, which was a day they, the ACT UP set as a deadline for the government to increase funding to Australian trials and to relax restrictions on the approval of drugs. Uh, when the government didn't do anything by that day. They staged a series of protests, which included mailing to every MP a, an obituary of someone who had died of AIDS and sort of saying, you know, what are you going to do? Hmm. And it also included absailing into parliament while the health minister was speaking and throwing <laughs> red streamers around to represent the red tape that was preventing any action being taken. How in? hard
2: is it to absail into Parliament?
0: Well, I think the thing is that everyone's down in the floor and then up in the gallery is where the public can sit. Right.
2: I assumed that they were coming in from, like, a skylight.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think they were in the public gallery and then okay. abseil down onto the floor. Eventually, these protests did lead to government action and um, there was a review of Australia's HIV drug approval procedures and the introduction of AZT into Australia on a larger scale. So AZT was the first drug to treat HIV, but it wasn't perfect. And, you know, it didn't actually cure you or anything. Um, one of Spoilers. The... Spoilers. You can't cure AIDS. One of the early people to take it, David Menadu, described it as a horrible experience. You had to take large doses every four hours. There were a whole lot of four side hours. effects. Yeah. Yeah. At night? I think so, yeah. Wow. So, judging by how David Menadu talks about it, I think so. He, Yeah, it sounds awful. So it was basically seen as something to keep you alive until something better came along. Hmm. Um, So in 1996, something better did come along. And that was called highly active antiretroviral therapy. And that's not one drug, but it's a whole host of drugs sort of taken in combination. They use mathematical modeling to work out which combination is best for you and which drugs you should take which between them, all these drugs can kind of suppress HIV enough that it becomes a chronic illness you can live with rather than a terminal illness that will kill you. So at this point, if you've got HIV... Now, if you have HIV, your lifespan is not that much different to the lifespan of a person without HIV. Okay. Okay. Because using these drugs, you can keep the level of virus low enough in your blood that your immune system stays strong. Hmm. So um, that shift from terminal illness to chronic illness is a very kind of important shift in the history of AIDS and the introduction of part H-A-R-T is a very important step in the history obviously there are issues with this as well no drug is perfect every drug has side effects and people struggle to kind of fit their lives around the combination of drugs they had to take you know you have to take this one after a meal and this one on an empty stomach and Mm. when you're taking so many drugs in combination that's very complicated and difficult now those drugs are often packaged into one pill so it's become easier. But at the time, it was very difficult. If it's, I know there's a technical question you
1: probably don't know, if it's packaged into one pill, how do they manage those things with the kind of personalising this to people like you talked about mathematical modelling and...
0: Um, There's a variety of different packaged into one pills and you would go and talk to your doctor and they would say, I think we'll try this for you and we'll see how it goes and you know will okay. change what you're taking. So there's not a, you know, symbol, take this drug every day and your AIDS is gone. So another issue that wasn't immediately apparent to me, but I think is worth talking about, is that many people with HIV or with AIDS just didn't have the psychological energy to deal with kind of taking a complicated treatment. They'd already dealt with the epidemic. They'd probably dealt with friends dying. They would dealt with finding out they had the disease and they dealt with coming to terms with the fact that they were going to die. And that meant for a lot of them quitting a job, quitting study, spending all their money... And they just kind of weren't prepared for this revelation that they were actually going to live. Hmm. And they didn't know what to do with their lives. Um, Bill O'Loughlin, who is one of these people, said, suddenly it was like, well, now you get on with your life. And I didn't know how to. So that's kind of an ongoing issue that we have to think about in terms of things like unemployment and housing. Just because there is a treatment doesn't mean these problems went away for people who have got AIDS since or for people who already had HIV at the
1: time. I mean, I guess it's like that thing when we have one of those sort of predicted fake apocalypse situations where there's always a bunch of people who spend all their money on the last wild party. Yeah. And then, except in this case, it's a sort of
0: forgivable impulse. I mean, yeah, yeah some people did spend all their money. Yeah. And for some people, it was just a psychological thing. They kind of had to do a lot of psychological work to accept that they were going to die. And then somebody turned around and said, well, you know, you've got 20 more years ahead of you. And they just went, I, I need to recalibrate everything, which I've just recalibrated And yeah, it was just very, very hard. Heart was introduced in 96. And so by 1999, deaths from AIDS, despite what I've said about, you know, this being hard and difficult, deaths from AIDS decreased dramatically and people are now living with the disease. For a more positive quote on how that was than Bill O'Loughlin, David Menagew, who we know hated AZT, described this as too miraculous for words. And he said, we called it Lazarus syndrome. So I decided to stop the historical part of the episode here because that's the introduction of the treatment that is used today. And also because 1998 is the year with the lowest number of new HIV cases in Australia. Hmm. So that was when they had plummeted to their lowest point. That so is, pretty good. is what you're saying, if 1998 was the lowest year, that it's on the rise? It is. It is. That's, yeah, I was going to finish with a little bit of sort of how it is today. And I think the reason it's on the rise is because we were so good at combating it hmm. and people no longer see it as an issue. That's interesting. Yeah, because we were so successful through our education campaigns and these grassroots government partnerships and stuff at maintaining a quite low rate of HIV infection. Yeah, it's come to be seen as not an issue. And as it became less of an issue, the government, you know, began to give it less funding. With I thanks. think not less funding overall, but less funding in terms of, you know, funding accelerated rapidly and now it's kind of, you know... Steady. D- steady, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the government's given it less funding. People talk about it less. People aren't worried about it. So um, in the late '90s, we were seeing about 650 new cases a year, and now we're seeing a bit over a thousand new cases a year of HIV. That population increase, though. Yeah. So with population increase, that's not actually so bad, and it has actually this problem has got less of a problem in the past few years. Mm. We're better at dealing with it now than we were five years ago. And so in 2015, there was a, um. Study that revealed that men having condomless casual sex was at an all-time high in Australia. All time? I tried to follow that up, that use of the phrase Mm. all time, but I couldn't actually find the original report that that came from. I could only find people kind of just quoting the statistic from the report.
2: I can definitely see that skewing with willingness to report
0: too. Yeah, yeah. So maybe let's, I think we can assume since the... um Crisis. Crisis. I don't think all time is actually the correct word there, but that's what everyone said. And yeah, I think the major issue here is that as young queer people, we don't think of AIDS as a problem and we don't kind of see it as a part of our history a lot of the time. It's like, yeah, the AIDS epidemic happened, but I don't think young gay men today are thinking, you know, my community went through this and this is a thing that my community needs to combat or anything like that.
1: I Mm. mean, I think this is very much one of those things where queer people... Today have this tendency to think that we are the first generation to be queer people, basically.
0: And I think queer people in every generation have kind of had this tendency to varying degrees. And it's partly because there's no obvious kind of generational transmission of information. Like, if you're part of a minority community that's based on race or that's based on religion, you get it from your parents and you learn about it from your parents and you know that there's this history behind you. But if you're queer, you don't get that.
1: No, it's true. You kind of come into queerness as an adult.
0: Yeah, and and you often have to go through your own journey of self-realization and so you don't necessarily think oh you know this six-year-old woman might know what i'm going through like i don't Mm -hmm. think that crosses anyone's mind yeah i think there is a big generational divide in the queer community and i have a quote from the the president of the victorian aids council in 2003 where he kind of realized this and he says i recently asked a friend of mine a very socially active gay man in his mid-20s how many aids funerals he had been to The answer was none. And, like, um, Adam Carr's tone in this quote is very... Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's just a totally different experience to what he had. Yeah, and nobody quite realises how different the experience is unless you sit down and talk about the history of the community and then people kind of realise what happened. And I think we can compare that to... I've got a quote from um, one of the volunteers in the AIDS Mates program, Mary Bodkin, who said in 94... I filled in a form, which was on one of the pages of the Sydney Star Observer, so that's a gay newspaper in Sydney, towards the end of last year. They asked us to count up all the people we knew who had died from HIV-AIDS, and I stopped at 100. Oh. So, yeah, that's such a vastly different experience. Mm. In such a short space of time as well. Mm. Like, that's in 94, and Adam Carr's talking in 2003. That's less than 10 years. I always just
1: remember asking my mum once cuz she would always talk about these gay friends that she'd had and i remember asking her once and being like what happened to them where were, where are they all and she sort of looked at me and she was like i took you to a lot of funerals when you were a toddler hmm. and yeah. i was like okay i guess that's it
0: yeah yeah and i kind of say and i don't know if this is uh reported phenomenon but i kind of see how you'd come out of that and just not want to talk about it as well
1: yeah and just kind of be like well that's never want to think about that yeah like i'm wanna... gonna
0: move on with my life kind of thing
2: and it seems callous to say that the pool of people who could potentially pass on that information is smaller
0: yeah i think that's very true as well mm. they all died like if we say to our mom where are your gay friends they're all dead that's where they are They're not here to, you know, oh, my mum's friend is gay. That's, you know, an older queer person I can talk to. No, they're just not there. They're just not there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's why it is very important for us to be talking about queer history because we do have that generational gap Mm. where nobody is there's nobody to pass on this information who obviously has that role. And in this instance, it happens that, you know, that is actively affecting the spread of a disease. So before we finish, we just I just want to say a couple of things about safe sex and about PrEP. And given that HIV is confusingly on the rise in Australia, what can be done to stop that? We established that this may not be the case <laughs> for
2: population but reasons. As a function of absolute numbers of cases, sure.
0: Yeah. yeah okay. I mean, the thing is that we know what it is. There are tests. We know exactly how you get it and how to stop that. We shouldn't be getting new cases. Mm. It just, you know, it doesn't need to be happening.
2: <laughs> I mean, ideally we should get to the point where it's something like the Black Plague that springs up in the mountains, mountains of Madagascar every 25 years or so. Yeah. Or like six years.
1: Yeah, I guess that's true. It should become one of those things where like, once my mother's cousin had the Black Plague. Oh, really? Yeah, he did. I don't know yeah. how this happened or where he got it, but they were very confused because they were just did not expect this because we don't see that anymore. Yeah
0: yeah yeah so what you can do today to prevent this problem which is very preventable is obviously get tested if you think you are at risk or if you have had sex with someone who you don't know whether or not they may have hiv or just get tested generally you know for safety use condoms which i think is a very straightforward thing that you know doesn't need much explaining If you are going to have sex with someone who you know has HIV or who you don't know their status and you think there may be a risk, there's also something called pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is known more commonly as PrEP, which is a daily medicine that you can take to lower your chance of being infected. So if you have HIV, it's not that's not the medicine you should be taking. It's if you think you may be at risk of contracting HIV. So you have to get tested for HIV and make sure you are negative before you can take this medication.
1: So, like, if you have, like, a partner who has HIV or something, you will want to take this?
0: Yeah, something like that. Or if you're having casual sex and maybe you're not always using a condom for whatever reason or anything like that, you could want to take this. It's 90% effective.
1: So you still use a condom.
0: So ideally, PrEP combined with a condom yeah. is yes. the best way to avoid getting HIV if you think you are going to be at risk of contracting it for whatever reason.
2: Because 90% sounds like a really good number, but is not really a very good number.
0: I
1: mean, once you've had sex 10 times, it's not a great number. So on that note, now we've reached the
0: modern day, we've been queer as fact, I'm Alice. I'm still Hamish. I'm still Irene. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed our podcast, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter or Tumblr as Queer as Fact. Um, you can also email us directly at Queer at gmail.com and we'd be very excited if you did. You can find us on Podbean or iTunes or wherever you found us to listen to this episode. If you listen to us on iTunes or if you don't and you just really love us, please rate us and review us because it will help other people to find us and learn about queer history. We'll be back on the 15th of December, when Irene will be talking to us about Lesbia Harford, who is a bisexual Australian poet and labour activist who was just coincidentally named Lesbia by her parents. So I'm using that for my child. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.